We heard from another listener of this podcast late last week to say yes. The Christmas lighting will continue at Neela Park. It was GE. They listened to the podcast and they wanted to rest everybody assured the Christmas lights are not going anywhere. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. Layla Atassi will be back tomorrow. Happy Monday. It's going to be a much nicer Monday than it was a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm-hmm. A beautiful week, week ahead. Looks, yeah, it looks gorgeous. I'm feeling very optimistic about this week. And 68 is predicted on St. Patrick's Day. That's extremely rare. That parade after not being here for the last couple of years is going to be um, a big one. So and all the and all those girls in their Irish dance outfits with the, the sweatshirts and the headbands. It'll be so hot. It'll but it'll it'll be lovely. I think we'll welcome that heat. So let's begin. Would the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the number of people who own guns in this country discourage an internal attempt at tyranny or an external invasion like we see in Ukraine? Laura, this is one of these wacko questions we throw out there and examine to give our readers of our platform something different. Bob Higgs talked to a whole lot of people for a story about what it would mean here. Got a, got a varied response, but generally the answer is wouldn't mean anything. Correct. I mean, this is the idea that gun rights activists are saying that the Second Amendment and this guaranteed right to bear arms would keep us safer. Apparently, I did not know this, the United States is the only nation with more guns than people. We have nearly 400 million firearms in civilian hands here. That means four in 10 adults have access to a gun. But that doesn't necessarily make us any safer. Obviously, this is a rhetorical exercise. I don't see Canada or Mexico likely to attack. And any attack from an overseas power would have a geography barrier of an ocean. And, you know, our nuclear arsenal would probably be a much bigger deterrent than people who have handguns in their bedside tables. But it's not just about deterring an attack. That's their argument. Well, there's also the idea of internal, internal tyranny and internal takeover. Um, And he talked to some legal minds that said this wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. He talked to some Second Amendment advocates who said, look, if if you had somebody trying to set up some kind of occupation, having lots of people with guns to play gorillas would make a difference. Right. And that's an interesting exercise. That's where the, you know, the comparison to Ukraine makes a lot of sense, because even if Russia does manage to take over the country, they're going to have a whole lot of people that do not want to be dictated, right? And so if for some reason we had a foreign power overtake the United States, then the people who it would be a lot harder to to govern and, and maybe people would give up and go back home because it, if everybody has their own guns and they're constantly fighting, they're not going to be orderly and obedient. Yeah, this is one of the reasons the Second Amendment people don't like gun registries, because if you did have some kind of tyranny, they could come and try and take your guns. But if they don't know where they all are, they can't do it as easily. Interesting, uh, not not a topic that we're going to be able to go into depth on a, on a podcast like this, but it's a story well worth reading by Bob Higgs. It was in Sunday's Plain Dealer, and it is on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Can a state program aimed at reducing the number of children being sent to juvenile institutions for crimes be blamed, at least partly, for the spate of violent carjackings we've seen in greater Cleveland involving juveniles? Lisa, this is an Adam Faris story. It's eye-opening because it does seem to show that we've gone a little bit too far here. 
Yeah, uh, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley seems to think that the Reclaim program, he says it's not bad, but it certainly needs some tweaks. Reclaim is a program that was started in 1992 as an effort to reduce the juvenile incarceration rate in Ohio. Uh, Basically, they closed eight of 11 prisons and reduced the juvenile inmate inmate population from 2,500 back in 1992 to 428 as of last week. So the money that they save from this is about $30.5 million a year. That money is distributed among the 88 county juvenile courts in Ohio based on a formula, and um, the money from this must go to community rehabilitation programs for probationers to keep juveniles out of the system. So, but, you know, my O'Malley says that, you know, there was a spate of 2021 20, emails between court officials that showed that the number of youth sent to prison has an effect on the allocation of funds. So the fewer people that they send to prison, the more reclaim money that they get. So in this email chain, there was a court official, uh, uh, Melissa McDaniel, she was a quality improvement specialist. And she said, well, and she was warning court officials. She said that and this was to Administrative Judge Thomas O'Malley. She says that the 44 youths that were sent to prison last year cost them $1 million in reclaimed funding. She says if we continue sending juveniles at this pace, we won't get any reclaimed funds for 2022. So see, you can see the issue there. Yeah, the, the problem is, it, it was all noble. There were way too many kids in, we're calling them prisons, but they're basically reformatories because the whole purpose of juvenile justice is to change the kids before they get to adulthood. And there were way too many. Ohio didn't rank well. There were problems inside with abuse. But but this seems to show an overcorrection. And if you have court administrators worrying more about the money than the idea of taking dangerous children off the street, then you have the repeat offenders. Mike O'Malley is very upset because he's his staff has prosecuted some people who have been involved in things like gun crimes and he expects them to be gone. So they're no longer a threat. Then they're back on the street committing carjackings. So his argument is at least part of our carjacking problem is because of the bean counters in the juvenile court system worried more about money than justice. Right. And he also pointed out that these kids that go through reclaim are not really going through the system. They're be, they're avoiding the system. That's what reclaim is all about. And we've had a couple of incidents here in Cleveland, most notably the tragic December 31st carjacking shooting death of police officer Shane Bartek. Um, and the woman charged in that case had been charged in armed robberies before, but yet was back out on the street. Don't know if she was part of a reclaim program or not. Now, um, the Ohio Department of Youth Services Deputy Director Jordan Argus says 83% of the ones they sent to reclaim programs in 2020 did not get rearrested last year. And there is a study out of the University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute from 2015 that says reclaim participants are far less likely to reoffend than those who do go through the system. So it probably sounds like it needs a tweak because if they're looking at the dollars and not the lives here, that's a problem. Well, and remember, Michael Malley does get criticized fairly frequently because he treats more juveniles as adults than most prosecutors. He argues, show me a case where I did that, where it wasn't a heinous crime that merited it. 
uh, but he but there are people that question his credibility on things like this. But he's got some numbers and some facts behind what he brought about. It's a good piece by Adam Faris. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Is the administration of Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish so inept that it's not paying the bills? What happened to the ability to do legal research at the prosecutors, public defenders, and judges' offices? Laura, it's kind of a basic need in those offices to be able to do legal research. Yeah, absolutely. This is not something that's just you want. This is something you need. You have to look it up uh, for legal research. And the whole county court system relies on it to file briefs, motions, or orders. So Nexus Lexus uh, temporarily went dark on March 3rd after the county had failed to pay the bill dating all the way back to September. County spokeswoman Mary Louise Madigan said the company never sent paper invoices for any of the last four months of 2021 (laughs) before the deadline to process the payments on December 2nd, which you think if you're you have to pay this monthly bill that you would be used to paying it. Also, why are they waiting for paper bills to come in if it's like a regular response? Don't you have like an automatic bill pay set up in the county? Who who counts on paper? That's ridiculous. I do wonder. You know, we're hearing that there are lots of bills that aren't paid and we're chasing that down. The county has been slow to provide the records. What a surprise. But I, I halfway wonder whether they're not paying their bills intentionally to falsely inflate their cash reserves because they're going to go to bond to build the jail and they're going to give a false impression of how much money they have. I mean, who doesn't pay their bills? That's this basic of function as there is. And to not let the the prosecutor, the public defender, and the judges have legal research is like telling the garbage truck guy, go pick up the trash and not giving him a truck. It's a basic <laughs> tool of the job. So it's I the, the county has more explaining to do on this. Hopefully the county council will get involved. We're, we're again, digging into what they haven't paid, but it's preposterous that they're not paying their bills. I completely agreed. I mean, Mary Louise Madigan said, we pay our bills when we get them. We didn't get a bill. They've since paid the bill. The access is back. But it it does make you wonder. And if you think that they're trying to just increase cash reserves, I mean, I don't know how exactly the bond market works. It's very complicated, obviously. But when they do a credit check for you to get a mortgage or something, they can tell how high your credit card balance is compared to your cash reserves. So you think there'd be something that says you owe all of this money. So it doesn't really matter that you have more cash reserves because you have more debt. Well, I'm trying to give them credit for some kind of brain matter here because (laughs) the alternative is they're just such clods they can't do their jobs, like pay the bills. So I'm looking for something that requires some brain matter that would give a motive to this because otherwise... It, they can't this administration can't end I mean soon maybe enough. there's one person in the county whose job it is to pay all the paper bills that come in but you think <laughs> they could just set up some automatic bill pay and save everybody some trouble come on everybody every household every business every nonprofit agency has to handle bills this is a basic of life and the county should be able to do that it's today in Ohio When Cleveland residents voted to have civilians take over the disciplinary process for Cleveland after years of incompetence by the city, critics said the charter amendment was in conflict with the city's consent decree in federal court for police reform. Maybe not, right, Lisa? 
Well, there is not any significant difference between what we have now and what Issue 24 will bring to the table. Uh, Cleveland Law Director Mark Griffin says Issue 24 doesn't really significantly conflict with the federal dissent decree from 2015. The city of Cleveland and the Department of Justice agreed to change that dissent decree, dissent consent decree to incorporate the new 13-member Community Police Commission. Now, this decision is awaiting approval by federal judge Simon Oliver, who's overseeing the consent decree, and he will look at it this Thursday on St. Patrick's Day. Mayor Justin Bibbs says if they get approval, recruiting for the CPC, the new commission will begin immediately. Yeah, but if you'll remember during the campaign, there were there were multiple a whole bunch of people were claiming the sky was falling. One, it's in conflict with the police union contract and so it can't be implemented. And the police union is still arguing that and they plan to fight that through arbitrators Mm -hmm. in the courts. Two, it was in conflict with the consent decree and the consent decree was something the city signed. And if this passes, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. But that was the previous administration. The new administration, you know, Justin Bibbs supported the chartered amendment, says this isn't a problem at all. And it sounds like the people that are monitoring the consent decree on the federal side agree with that, right? Right. You know, but there are they do have to change the decree to incorporate the the uh, community. I always get these. There's so many different bureaus and layers here the community police commission the new one they have new powers it's a new commission they have new powers that are not in the consent decree this commission can enact policies they can make training decisions they have final say on hiring practices and they can override decisions of the police chief and the safety director so that does need to be folded in but as you alluded to chris you know the cleveland police patrolman's association president jeff ulmer says our contract overrides any charter and they will challenge the charter amendment as soon as the cpc starts issuing disciplinary orders yeah i did the police union has not had credibility for years because they just take a knee-jerk reaction to anything so we'll have to see what the truth of that is once they start to contest it i just i I, you can't believe what they say because they just throw flame it's today in ohio this should be a momentous week in the effort to draw fair legislative and congressional districts in Ohio, which really has bigger ramifications for the future of this state than anything else that's happening. So let's level set. First, Lisa, where do we stand on the battle over the congressional districts? Well, we have two legislative maps and one congressional map that are out there in limbo, but we are really expecting a ruling yeah, from but the Ohio I'm, Supreme let, Court. Yeah, but let, let's stick to the congressional. We'll get to the legislative okay. in a minute. So we're, what happened last week and what's going to happen this week with the congressional? Okay, so the uh, redistricting committee faces a four o'clock deadline tomorrow to respond to plaintiffs, you know, who have sued against these maps and, you know, their arguments that maps favor the GOP majority. So the district redistricting commission has to respond to that. And as I said, you know, Supreme Court should rule soon on the latest congressional maps. If they're rejected again, that probably means the May 3rd election will have to be moved. 
And they're in their second round of maps, unlike the legislative, which is in its third. Correct. Uh, it, it will be interesting. See, I, it struck me this morning, we're less than two months, right, from Election Day, and we don't know what the congressional boundaries are. I'm getting the, the barrage of uh, campaign stuff in the district I'm in already, and it's like, you don't even know if you represent this district yet. So it's very strange how this is proceeding. Well, and two, what's happening is, you know, they're they're trying to piecemeal this out. I mean, Senate Bill 11 passed last week. That moves the military voting deadline, which is a federal deadline, from March 18th to April 3rd, when they should have just moved the whole election. I mean, they may have to do that anyway. So, I don't know. I think they will. I don't think there's any way they're going to be able to carry it off. All right, next, let's speculate a bit on why the Ohio Supreme Court is taking so long on the legislative districts. Laura, set the table on where we stand and then I'll start the speculation. (laughs) Okay, so we are still waiting. We expected a decision any time last week for the Supreme Court to say whether the third round of maps that the ones that the Republicans finally gave with the close to the 46-54 split in Ohio, whether those are going to be accepted. I mean, boards of elections are getting ready for this May 3rd primary. They're assuming the third set of maps will stand, but no one knows. The Democrats and the League of Women Voters don't agree. They don't think they should stand. They think they should be rejected. And it's possible they might. And you just have to, I mean, the Supreme Court are smart people. They have to be aware of this time issue that every day they wait gets more and more dire for all of these boards of election who already need $9 million more. But but we expected this decision a week and a half ago and we didn't get it. So the idea that we're expecting them to reject it doesn't carry as much weight. If they're going to reject it, the four justices who've rejected the first two would just sign an opinion and reject them. And they haven't. And so I'm wondering what what's going on. And I, I was talking to Andrew Tobias last week. I said, is it possible that there are some Republican justices that have moved to the other side? Like, say Maureen O'Connor and the Democrats decided, OK, we're good with these maps. And then the Republicans said, yeah, we think they're gerrymandered the way Keith Faber did. You might have some weird combination of Republicans and Democrats who are going to go against the maps. Andrew didn't think that's that's what it was. He wonders whether the real battle is over what they can tell the commission to do. Like if if they reject them, instead of just telling them redraw them again, are they debating what else they can do? What do you think the possibility is of that? I mean, I think anything is possible at this time. I, I didn't expect there to be three rounds of map drawing. And like you said, we're you know, a month and a half from this election, and we don't know what the boundaries are going to be. So every day gets more and more chaotic, and you're wondering what they are waiting for. But I mean, you're right. You think that if they were going to reject them, they would have done it right away. But you also think, well, if they were cool with them, they would have done it right away. So I have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah, there's strife. There's, There's obviously some conflict. And it's just, what is that conflict? Because this has taken way too long. And like you said, they're aware of the, the ticking clock here. So every day they dawdle, it puts the state more into a crisis. They've said they don't really care about that because the legislature can move the election. But it is a basic fact that they are delaying the process now by their indecision. I, I'm just thrown because, you know, remember, we expected they're going to do it at five o'clock a week and a half ago on a Friday. 
And then we mm-hmm. went an entire extra week, and they mm-hmm. still didn't do it at 5 I o'clock mean, how this many, past Friday. How long has it been? Because the first ones really were only a couple of days in between, right? Like less than a week sometimes. And so this has been a long time. Yeah, they're doing a disservice to the state, but but maybe it's because they can't reach a conclusion. Anyway, we're hoping, we believe it'll be this week because they're running out of time. (laughs) It'll be like May 2nd and they'll put out something. They'll they'll affirm the maps the day we go to the polls. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is a federal judge in Akron turning up the pressure in a big way to get public get the public answers on who exactly inside First Energy approved the huge bribery scheme in the Ohio State House, which raises the question once again about why these folks in First Energy are escaping justice. Laura? Right. So federal judge John Adams issued this four page filing on Friday. He told attorneys in the Forced Energy Corporation shareholders case that they have until noon on Wednesday to file briefs as to why details about this discredited legislation can be withheld. He believes they shouldn't be because it existed before mediation. But this is his continuing from the hearing Wednesday when he demanded that the attorney tell him who authorized bribes to Larry Householder. His view is this should not be shielded from the public. When he didn't get the answers he wanted, he left the hearing. So now he's issued it in writing and he's expecting an answer. Yeah, I think he's reflecting the frustration of everybody who's watching this case. If if you commit a crime and you're identified as the person who committed the crime, they charge you with the crime. And mm-hmm. th- what what's really clear is they all know who committed this crime. They all know who is the chief briber here. And yet it's a year and a half, more than a year and a half later, and this person is escaping justice. And that's ridiculous. At this point, why haven't they been charged? I, I don't know. I think Adams is really reflecting the voice of the people here. And I, it's going to be fascinating to watch the attorneys dance on this. And I don't get why the attorneys don't just give it up. Just say who it well, is. Right. They're representing the shareholders, right? I mean, the shareholders are trying to recoup money from to to recoup money for the company because they all lost money. I mean, it's very complicated, but they reached a $180 million agreement that the judge has not signed off on. So they want the judge to sign off on it. Maybe they're going to have to give him the answers he wants. The thing is, this is a civil case. He has, John Adams has no say over the federal case. And what he's asking for is to know who's going to be charged next, right? But, Which but, we've all but been I... waiting for that shoe to drop. But I, but I, th- I think that's the frustration. It's like right. we expected the, the, the funders of the bribery to be charged as well as the recipients of the bribery a long time ago. The federal prosecutors are just not moving very quickly. And, and he's saying, look, you know who it is. Say who it but is. is it Let's really the attorney's job to do that. It should be the prosecutors. I mean, I understand the attorney saying I can't do this. Like my attorney client privilege says I can't give this up. But I, what I, I, what if in the discovery on this, there is some fact that changes for the shareholders what they expect? What if they find out that there was a whole cabal of people at the top of First Energy that was torpedoing the value of the stock and the shareholders by knowing that might expect more money in the settlement. I mean, it is, this is a civil case. The facts matter as to how you come up with the final settlement and they're hiding it. And and the judge does not like that there haven't been any depositions for the settlement. He's like, how did you get to this number? Like you didn't do enough discovery. Right.
they're they're being secretive yet again. So, <laughs> so I, I'm look. Adams takes a lot of criticism, sometimes deserved, but he's doing the people's work here. He's un, unlike some judges. He knows who he represents. He represents the greater community. He's not a stooge for the people in the lawsuit. So yeah, and let's, he's, he he says if the attorneys don't provide what he wants, he could take the attorneys off the case. Well, it's going to be interesting. We may find out then this week who is the chief briber. <laughs> We're gonna... I certainly hope so. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with the bribery scheme for a minute. Do we finally have a trial date for Larry Householder, the accused mastermind of this biggest statehouse bribery scheme in history? Why Why is it taking so long to get to the trial, Lisa? Well, it's going to be a very complex trial, and it's expected to take about six weeks, and they're wading through mounds and mounds of documents for discovery for this case. They did set a date for Larry Householder's criminal trial for January 23rd of 2023. Uh, Jury selection will begin January 20th in U.S. District Judge Timothy Black's court down in Cincinnati. Um, Black will hear some pre-trial motions, though, starting April 25th. He's got a schedule of hearings. And it's expected that householder attorneys may move to dismiss the case against him at this first hearing. I, I had to chuckle because the attorneys, when we when Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer talked to the attorneys, householder attorney Stephen Bradley says, Larry is anxious to have his day in court, meaning Larry Householder. And then uh, Matthew Borges' attorney, uh, Carl Scheider, he's being tried along with uh, Householder in this trial. He says, Matt would have preferred to go in the hall, but ha- fall, but happy to have a trial date. So it's kind of, I guess they're trying to humanize their, their clients by calling them by their first names. Larry and Matt going to trial. It does seem unfair to Borges to be tried with Larry Householder. The, yeah, the, they should the, sever. Yeah, I mean, the weight of the evidence against Householder is pretty overwhelming. Borges is making a case that you got nothing here on me. I mean, he's he's been pretty pretty hard-edged about his innocence. Putting him in the same trial with Householder, I would think that would kind of color the jury's mind on his guilt. Yeah, and there and at this April twenty fifth hearing, we could very well see a motion to sever. You know, the the two and have a separate trial for Borges. So we'll have to wait until April to see. Um, and we know, you know, that three people, well, two people and a group have already pled guilty. Generation Now, Householder aide Jeff Longstreth, lobbyist Juan Suspedis, another guy committed suicide. So, I mean, it's not, look, it's not looking good for this guy. I would think that Borges would want to sever to try and, you know, get a better, uh, you know, a better trial. Well, he's a, he's a slice of this thing. He's not in in all of it and to be put into that trial it just seems unfair he's argued uh, since this has begun that he's being treated unfairly this would give that credence i think not severing that does put him in a more difficult situation you're listening to today in ohio the future of downtown office space is very much up in the air as we've discussed given the number of people working from home but offices in the suburbs are doing quite well. Laura, this was a good story by Eric Heisig. What is the story? Yeah, more companies are considering moving to the suburbs because offices are more easily accessible. They can be cheaper, parking is easier, and they may be located closer to where a lot of employees live. Places like Sugar and Boulevard and Beachwood or Rockside Road and Independence are really popular. And there's still a lot of activity around there. So downtown, it's always been like, look, look, everything we have. We have the sports, we have the restaurants, we have the hotels. 
well, aside from the sports stadiums, a lot of the suburbs have that too. And Eric cites a report from a new brokerage firm. Suburban Cleveland office space actually finished the year of 2021 with less available space than at the beginning. It was just like about 10,000 square feet out of more than 21 million total. But that's still saying something. And downtown has the opposite uh, issue, basically. Well, we know this from personal experience because our building is on the market, as everybody knows. And when it sells, we'll be looking for a new space. And mm-hmm. you know, what's the number one consideration from people when they come downtown? Well, parking. Yeah. <laughs> I and, mean, and, in our uh, office, it's definitely parking because we're in and out for stories. And it's not just we park at eight o'clock and leave at six. But I don't think anybody likes parking garages and walking. And what Especially you heard from people in Eric's story is the convenience for people to zip into the suburban parking lot, zip out, that the employees really like that, especially if they mm-hmm. live close by, whereas the downtown parking situation is much more inconvenient. And we don't have really much in the way of mass, mass transit opportunities. No. So uh, I was... Go ahead. The vacancy rate downtown was 22.5% compared to 16.1% in the suburbs, which that's telling. And I mean, we still have this issue of how many people are going to come back because this is current office space. We don't know what these offices are going to do in the future. And we don't know how often, even if they have the office space, their employees are in the office. Yeah. When you talk to leaders in town, they're all considering this issue, whether leave Cleveland downsize greatly in Cleveland. Uh, the future of downtown Cleveland office space is, is bleak, although it does raise the chance for more residential downtown, which a lot of people yep. are excited about. But there's well, still but a I, cachet of downtown. And you know, Sherwin-Williams mm-hmm. is building their brand new headquarters. I, I don't think you mm-hmm. can discount that. Lisa. Right. And a suburban campus, I mean, I live just down the road from Progressive. There are a lot of people who live on the west side who have to drive through Cleveland, through the east side to get to Progressive. I mean, so just putting it in the suburbs isn't really handy for everybody. And I believe the article mentioned that they said that this might not be a permanent trend. They say it's an interesting wrinkle, but maybe not permanent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are so many ramifications of the pandemic that have yet to fully form. It's going to end up being a huge societal shift that we're in the middle of and we don't even recognize. Good story by Eric Isaac. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio and that wraps up a Monday conversation. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks everybody who listens. We'll be back on Tuesday.